I just wish I could have been there. I'm like, I, I love representing him all these years later, but uh, I've never seen Jesus. And uh, he even said to his disciples after Thomas had touched the nail prints in his hand and, and the scar on his side, blessed are those who don't see me and believe. And Peter said um, in the book he wrote, though we do not see him, we love him, and though we don't see him now, we rejoice with the joy unspeakable because we're receiving the joy of our faith, the salvation of our souls. But though we don't see him, we love him. And I can't explain to you why I love him other than yes, there was some training from my parents and I met some people along the way and I was introduced to the person of Christ and the life of Christ. And I don't take that for granted, but uh, I do love him. And there are times I don't understand him and there are times I'm mad at him and there are times where he feels distant and there are times where I read his word and it does not seem all that intriguing to me. But I, I don't know where else to go but him. It's as if Jesus keeps asking that questions he asked of the disciples when everyone left him. In the beginning of John, he said, well, you leave me too. And they said, well, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Almost like if there was another way, I'd, I'd go somewhere else, but you're the one. I, I don't know where else to go. You're the only place to go to find what you're offering. Life eternal, life supernal, as the hymn says. And we're in the last week of the series of Jesus, but don't be dismayed. We are not gonna like talk about Jesus in another couple years when we do a series on him. We talk about him all the time. He's the center of everything we do. When you come in, you see the word wall He's there in big, bold letters, capitalized, Jesus. He's the, the hub, and everything else is a spoke off of him. And next week, we start a series called Nucleus, uh, where we talk about just the body of Christ, but he is the head. He is the head. He is the over-shepherd of this church and the central figure, the centerpiece. It's interesting, I was, I was thinking yesterday as I was kind of preaching through and praying through the message that even the fundamentals of the faith that bind churches together that we would say are churches that are gospel-centered churches, uh, the fundamentals of the faith, there are five that are recognized uh, across the earth. And when I went down through them, I was like, Jesus is such a deep part of each one of these. First, the deity of Christ believing that he is God. Second, the virgin birth of Christ believing that God was born of Mary and that he was 100% God and 100% man. He was the son of man and the son of God. And we believe in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, that he was the sacrificial lamb that took away the sins of the world, our surrogate sacrifice. And then we, we also believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are the things that bind churches together. And the fifth one is the inerrancy of scripture. Those are the five things, four of which are directly connected to the person of Jesus Christ. And to not believe any one of those things, your gospel fractures and frays and falls apart. And you run the risk of heresy. So as the series draws to a conclusion, I was reminded of this quote from the book Mere Christianity by undoubtedly my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, as he spoke passionately on the person of Jesus Christ, specifically him coming in the flesh and 
claiming to be God. And this bit of writing has always been a clarion call of sorts to me as I seek to see Jesus as he sought to be seen. C.S. Lewis wrote, and I quote, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said in the scriptures would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to which led this former atheist professor, C.S. Lewis, at Oxford University and Cambridge University to eventually say, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because of it, I see everything else. The reality is that Jesus altered the course of history in more ways than I often realize just outside of religion and the church and spirituality, his short life brought more revolutionary change to society than almost all other humans combined. His story inspiring almost all other inspirations that underpin the very fabric that sustains civilization itself. A Yale historian, Jaroslav Pelikan wrote this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? It turns out that the life of Jesus is a comet with an exceedingly long tail. And I thought I'd share some of those shards of his impact with most of us so that we would find the surprising effect of Jesus' life on this planet, especially the irreligious and maybe agnostic folk in the room today. The first would be his ideas about children. In the ancient world, children routinely left to die of exposure if they were unwanted, particularly if they were female. They would often be sold into slavery. And Jesus' treatment of and teachings about children led to the forbidding of such practices as well as orphanages and, get this, godparents. A Norwegian scholar named uh, Bake who wrote uh, a study of his impact simply titled, When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity, When Children Became Actual Human Beings and People in Civilization. The other thing he affected was education. Universities such as Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard all began as Jesus-inspired efforts to love God with all of one's mind. You see, the love of learning led to monasteries which became the cradle of academic guilds. The first legislation to publicly fund education in the colonies was called the Old Deluder Satan Act, interesting name under the notion that God does not want any child ignorant. 
The ancient world loved education, but tended to reserve it for the elite. The notion that every child bore God's image helped fuel the move for universal literacy. Another attribute of Christ that came out of his earthly life is compassion. Jesus had a universal concern for those who suffered that transcended the rules of the ancient world. His compassion for the poor and the sick and marginalized led to institutions for lepers, the beginning of modern day hospitals. In fact, the Council of Nyssa decreed that wherever a cathedral existed, there must also be a hospice, a place caring for the sick and poor. That's why even today, hospitals have names like the Good Samaritan or, or the Good Shepherd or St. Anthony. They were the world's first voluntary charitable institutions of care and compassion for the sick. One of Jesus' greatest attributes that shifted in time was humility. The ancient world honored many virtues of courage and wisdom, but not humility, not at all. People were generally divided into first class and to coach. And Jesus' life as a foot-washing servant would eventually lead to the adoption of humility as a widely admired virtue, especially in leaders. Historian John Dickinson wrote this, it is unlikely that any of us would aspire to this virtue were it not for the historical impact of his crucifixion. Our culture remains cruciform long after it stopped being Christian. And then he brought about forgiveness. In the ancient world, virtue meant rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. In fact, Conan the Barbarian was actually paraphrasing uh, Ghanis Khan, uh, his famous answer to the question, what is best in life? And his answer was to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women. But an alternative idea came from Galilee where what is best in life is to love your enemies and see them reconciled to you and to each other. Hannah Arndt, the first woman appointed to full professorship at Princeton, claimed the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. And then lastly, humanitarian reform. Jesus had a way of championing the excluded that was often downright irritating to those in power, and he would speak to power. His inclusion of women led to a community to which women flocked in disproportionate numbers. Slaves, up to a third of the ancient population at the time, would wander into a church fellowship and have a slave owner wash their feet rather than beat them. James, the half-brother of Jesus, instructed bishops not to just interrupt, but to greet those who were the poor and welcome them instead of letting them just sit on the floor by welcoming wealthy attenders. The apostle Paul even said a very controversial thing. Now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. And Thomas Cahill wrote this when he said, this is the first statement of egalitarianism in human literature, human life, had a level playing field at the foot of the cross for the first time in the ancient world through the person and placement of Christ in culture. For crying out loud, the very calendar of the world is based on the traditionally reckoned year of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, AD meaning 
Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord, literally counting the years from the start of Jesus' life, while BC, meaning uh, before Christ, denotes all the years that occurred before his entrance into life on this planet. This dating system is used by the entire globe at this very moment, acting as the core common denominator of all humankind, essentially putting us all on the same page. My daughter, Taylor, her birthday is today. She turned 16 in the year of our Lord, 2019, based on Jesus' entrance into the world. You're pretty awesome if you can change the calendar and it's wrapped around you. And all of life and time finds its basis and frame of reference at your birth. As I considered the magnitude of Jesus' impact on the progressive development on this planet, I was also captured by the centrality of his potency in scripture. When I was a freshman in 1992, I remember learning about Christology and Bible college and being fascinated with the person of Jesus Christ. I recall my systematic theology professor teaching that the whole of the Bible speaks with a Christocentricity whereby every one of the 39 books of the Old Testament before Christ was pointing toward him and every one of the 27 books of the New Testament was pointing back at him. He was the central figure overarching all of scripture, fulfilling each prophecy as well as filling every longing of every human heart, past, present, and future. And as I was thinking about this final and climactic week of our Jesus series and this message I'm calling the great culmination, my mind went back to Bible college and a class I took on the book of Hebrews where the author of this New Testament book was intoxicated with proving that Christ wasn't just the Messiah, Savior of the world, but the embodiment of every superlative that every soul was starving for since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. He was, as Paul called him, the second Adam, or as we would say, our second chance. He was the personification of what we would call him to be the all in all, or as he called himself, I am that I am. I remember the professor sweating up front with energetic passion, trying to get us 18-year-olds geeked up about his superiority and supremacy. He said that Hebrews was written expressly to prove that Jesus was better than the best expressions of purpose and meaning and connection with God that had ever been experienced up to this point in time. He was the grand finale, the culmination, the Christological crescendo of all things. And the Hebrew writer starts with a bang right off the bat in Hebrew chapter one and says, Christ is better than the angels. He moves on in chapter two, he's better than Moses and he's better than the high priest. Christ is a mediator of a better covenant and Christ provides a better sacrifice and Christ is the author of a better salvation. You see the word better all over the place as you flip through the pages of Hebrews. And as I read that book several times, the last couple weeks, I realized that the author used so many terms to describe Jesus that I simply had to read it line by line and find out just how many creative ways there are to name this hero of old Jesus. The author of Hebrews is obviously trying to convince the Hebrew people in particular that he was the long-awaited Messiah, but also the fulfillment of every covenantal requirement of the Jewish law. Listen to all the terms the writer of Hebrews used to describe Jesus in just 13 chapters. He is our sustainer, our empowerment, 
our purification, our justice, our righteousness, our anointing, joy, foundation, salvation, grace, pioneer, perfection, our brother, our freedom, our merciful servant, our faithful high priest, our atonement, our helper, our apostle, rebuilder, confidence, rest, creator, advocate, our friend, our passion, our example, our very sustenance, our resurrection, our heavenly gift, our goodness, our power, our blessing, promise, purpose, encouragement, hope, security, forerunner, our anchor, our life, our intercessor, our holiness, our sacrifice, our minister, our new covenant, our teacher, forgiveness, our eternal redemption, our sanctification, our mediator, our ransom, our sin bearer, our new and living way, our purity, avenger, judge, light, reward, our assurance, our inheritance, our reconciliation, our pleasure, our one author and finisher, our peace, healer, our consuming fire, our enduring home, and finally, our great shepherd. I mean, this is crazy. 13 chapters. The author of Hebrews was pretty jacked up about Jesus. Could Just all the superlatives of who he was. And one of the main reasons they don't know the author of Hebrews, people have speculated, is many believe that it was not a man who wrote Hebrews, that it was Priscilla. And in the early church, they would not receive a document written by a woman. Remember Aquila and Priscilla and how much they followed Christ and were essential to Paul. They believe she wrote this. And it wouldn't be accepted, so they said author unknown. But whoever the author is, they had a pretty intimate love of the person of Christ. And this author was trying to convince us today that Jesus is and was better. I was on the way home from seeing Heidi's parents this last week and we were at a rest stop and I was with my boys and the girls were going to the bathroom. They take way longer. And uh, so we were out there and we were waiting. We were playing uh, pop, paper, rock, scissors, rock, paper, scissors, whatever you call it. And so it, Caleb was like, we do one, two, three, go. And you put in, we were doing it for a while. And it was about the fourth time, and it was like, one, two, three, go. And I put in scissors, and Josh said, Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, well, no, no, that's not fair. You can't throw in Jesus and rock, paper, scissors. And he's like, well, Jesus beats them all. <laughs> and I'm like, that's very clever. And I don't know what they're teaching you in kids zone, but you don't mess with rock, paper, scissors <laughs> with that kind of unfairness. That's what we're talking about here. He beats them all. He fulfills them all. He's the longing of every heart. Every lesser lover that you're chasing after, there's a better way, there's a better person. So I wanted to take a dive into Hebrews, if you don't mind, as we finish the series, Always, Ever, Only, Jesus. These theological realities are the vital organs of the gospel. To understand who Jesus was and what Jesus did is necessary to understanding our own salvation with genuine emotional and intellectual affection. And I'm learning that affection anchored in intellect is infinitely better than the touchy-feely crap that evaporates the minute Jesus doesn't comply with our entitled expectations of him. So if you have your Bibles and your bibs, I want to eat heartily today 
and we're gonna swallow some big gulps of scripture and hopefully come to know and appreciate the necessity and centrality of Christ as the centerpiece of our salvation and furthermore, of our everyday lives. I'm gonna read a lot of scripture. The author in chapter one starts with a bang in verse one. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the whole universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. All that to say Jesus is the radiant representation of the creator God who came to eradicate sin and reign supreme over all. That's what that means. He goes on to say in chapter two, verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes the people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family now. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. You see, Jesus pioneered our salvation through his suffering and was unashamed to call us brothers and sisters by making a way for us to be adopted into the family of God as his siblings. He's brother Jesus, who made a way for us to have a relationship with Father God. He was that pioneer, as it says. And a pioneer, by definition, is the first to explore and settle a new land and a new landscape in life. Are you glad we have that pioneer that went before us? Our Lewis and Clark, right? Theologically. Goes on in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, since the children... We have flesh and blood. Jesus too shared in their humanity. He became human so that by his death, he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus came down in the flesh and blood to fight off the devil who uses fear to exert power over us. And he came to fight off our oppressor and lift our oppressions. I know I'm talking to somebody today because there's some of you here that battle with fear something fierce. And I want you to know he came to eradicate and to overcome the oppressor and your oppression today. And he just didn't do it from way up there. He came down here to share in your humanity so that he could put him in a chokehold and choke him out. I'm into MMA. <laughs> Hebrews 2, the author goes on, verse 17, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, some pretty big theological words. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted in this room today. See, atonement is reparation for wrongdoing and the hurt that it is caused, and that's what he came to bring as atonement for our sins. For the wrongdoing 
and for the after effects of the wrongdoing. For the sin as well as the shame. Jesus knows and feels what it's like to be tempted in every way so that he is a merciful advocate who has our back because he relates to the seduction of sin and he is for us. He is fighting for you. He is vouching for you. He is your advocate and he is a merciful advocate because he knows and feels what it's like to be seduced with sin and to struggle through the battle of temptation. Verse 14 of chapter four, it says, therefore we have this great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. That's what makes him different from us. That's why he could die for our sins and become sins for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's a big deal because Jesus empathizes with our weakness as our merciful high priest, making us, making a holy God approachable when we screw up. Instead of getting shamed by him, we receive grace and mercy in our time of need. You don't have to cower into his presence. I believe it's first John who said, those who sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he's gone before us and he is there as our high priest. And he is like your lawyer, your advocate, speaking to the judge on your behalf, giving a defense for you and saying, I've covered that sin. I atoned for that sin. I have ransomed them and bought them off the slave block of sin. I am the one who has purchased their pardon. They're good. When you look at them, you see your son. When you looked at me on that cross, you saw their sin. That was the great exchange. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, it says, During Jesus' days of, on this earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus showed us how to be sincere as well as submissive when we go through suffering so that we don't have to choose between being authentic and being obedient. I hear a lot of times in modern Christianity, I'm just keeping it real though. God just wants us to keep it real. Yeah, he wants us to keep it real, but he wants us to keep it right. And there's a way to be sincere and to be submissive and obedient. And Jesus taught us when you go through suffering, there's a way to be sincere, to let your heart out and say, let this cup pass from me. I don't want this, but not my will, yours be done. And I'd love to be in a church that keeps it real, but I want to keep it righteous too. Because holiness matters to me and obedience mattered to him. And you can be sincere and submissive at the same time. He taught us that. Hebrews 6, verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, that curtain to the holy place, right? Where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever. 
as to say Jesus is the forerunner who's gone before us so we can live with confidence, truly believing we're invited and that we belong at the party and in the family. And he's the anchor of our souls, giving us confidence in that, that we belong at the party and in the family. When I think of the word forerunner, and when I was reading this, I think of a lot of women who come to church before their husbands come. And they send them as forerunners to come here to find out what is the place like? Would I be comfortable? Are the guys there, you know, mamby-pamby, you know, artsy-fartsy? Yes, the pastor is, but not the rest of them. <laughs> but, but what's it like? You know, can I have tattoos? Can I, can, I, can I be there? I just was talking to somebody today who came in with a big chew in his mouth. I don't know, where are you at? <laughs> where are you at? Is that you right there? No, I don't know. Anyway, I love the guy. I love the guy. That is you right there, isn't it? Yeah, there you are. Stand up right now. Stand up right now. Here he is coming to our church. I'm not supposed to do that, but I did because I'm not politically correct. I, I don't know why in my heart, and I just had somebody come in today and said, this is a hell of a place you got here. Now, weird choice of words for a church, but I knew what he was saying. You know what? I, I, I really want people to come here not cleaned up. I want people to come here saying, I'm here to see if Jesus can change my life. Not I got to change and then go to church. I want to go to church and then I want Jesus to change me. Amen. Do you smell what I'm stepping in? And so when I think about this as a forerunner, it's like Jesus is going before us and he's the one that's actually like investigating and exploring and experimenting. And he's the one that we send out on a raid and, and we say, what was it like? What, did, what am I getting myself into? Do I belong? And he's like, yeah, you belong. I went beyond the curtain. You can come in with me. It's a safe place in the presence of God. Just stick close to me. Hebrews 7, in verse 24, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Well, that would have been weird if that wasn't actually you. I just got to thinking because I don't even, I can't even really see you other than the sunglasses on your hat right now. So I am really glad that was you and not a first time visitor. Oh man, that would have been crazy. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You know what that means? God, through Christ, Jesus is praying for you right now. Right now, he's interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is praying for you right now. And you're like, good, can he pray for my kids? He's praying for your kids too. But is he praying for my wife? Because she's really screwed up. He's praying for her too. He's praying for us right now at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. It goes on, such a high priest truly meets our need. No kidding. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners like us, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins first and then for the sins of the people. See, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself as the Lamb of God and put himself on that altar as the one who had never sinned. The perfect sacrifice, unblemished. 
He paid for all of our sins, one for all, once for all. When he offered himself as a blameless and pure surrogate sacrifice for each of our sins on the cross and our salvation is secure. You don't have to keep dying inside for your sin every day. You don't have to keep dying inside to just prove yourself to God. He proved everything to God. He became the propitiation or the satisfaction of the wrath of God for your sins. Stop killing yourself. He was already killed. He was already killed for you. Stop killing yourself. And aren't you glad it was one for all, once for all, no more sacrifices where we're bringing in turtle doves and we're bringing in goats and bullocks and sheep like it's the 4-H fair. We'd have to come in here if we lived in the Old Testament and you'd all have to bring a sacrifice today before we could meet with God and to be in the presence of the Holy of Holies himself the Shekinah glory of God. And it would be a bloodbath out there and I'd be slitting throats and then we'd come in here and they'd be cleaning it up. It would be slosh pit of guts and disgusting. This is what they did for thousands of years. And then Jesus said, no more of that. Butcher me once for all, all of sin, for all of time, past, present, and future. I'm gonna die for every one of those people before they ask me to die for them. Because while we were yet in sin, Christ died for us, it says in Romans chapter five, verse eight. That's how he demonstrated his love for us. Can I get a witness on how awesome that is? Even if you're like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. I'm glad he did that. Just that we didn't have to get our kids ready and go out and get an animal to bring in here to be butchered is a great, great thing about the new covenant. Then he says, how much more in chapter nine, verse 14, than will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, clean our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. It's eternal life now that he has died as a ransom to set them free. Jesus gave himself as a ransom to set us free so that we could live with a clean conscience, a mind at peace, no more guilt, shame, regret, or fear tormenting us, we're covered. We're covered. Clean, clear conscience before God. No more indulgences. No more God, okay, I'll, I'll try to do better next week to prove to you that I love. No, no. He, he did it all. And it was sufficient. Now we don't live for Salvation, we live from salvation. We don't live for approval, we live from approval. We don't have to work for our salvation. He, he did that work for us. And he ransomed us. He ransomed us. In Hebrews 12, it says, therefore, 
Verse one, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, we sang about this in King of Kings, the song that Heather sang this morning and we were able to sing together. He endured the cross, scorning his shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus became the prime example of perseverance, showing us how to endure hindrances and entanglements. You have them every week? I do. And disgrace and opposition without growing faint in our faith and just giving up. Consider him who did not give up and lose heart when you go through opposition, who the joy set before him endured it all, despising the shame. We can do that too. Look to Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. And then the great benediction in Hebrews 13, it says, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, his resurrection, that great shepherd of the sheep, that's the shepherd over the sheeple in this room, the sheeple, us, equip you with every good thing for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. It's through Jesus Christ working in us. Jesus is the only one who can work in us, change us, equip us with everything we need to do his will so that our lives not only bring him glory on this earth, but on into eternity. And we need him. I cannot change by myself. I've tried. It's very, very temporary. It's a vapor but by his spirit when he's working in me and changing me and equipping me, I become a better husband, become a better friend, a better dad, things that I would never have thought about. I start thinking about things I would have never felt. I start feeling things that I would have never done. I start acting upon as he equips me and, and empowers me with that resurrection spirit to bring him glory both now and forevermore so I can start living this life, the kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And then when I get to heaven, I can stand before God and say, I didn't just live for your glory up here now, I live down there. And I didn't wait to bow until I got before you here, I started bowing down there. Amen. And just after his resurrection, in Luke 24, it says that Jesus appeared to a couple of his disciples on this road to Emmaus and began to explain to them from the books of Moses or the Pentateuch all the way through the prophets to Malachi, how every story in the Old Testament had been about him all along. And he was trying to give them confidence that he already was the one that was spoken of and told about and prophesied. And you might think that the resurrection itself was enough proof, but evidently Jesus believed it would be even more convincing to show them that every single page of this book written before by more than 30 different authors over the space of 1500 years had consistently told one story and it was all about him. And we don't know exactly what he said to the, those two guys on the road to Emmaus about the scriptures that were speaking about him, but I imagine it would have been something like this. In Genesis, I was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. 
In Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of your heart so you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, I was the temple, the holy place where you met with God. In Numbers, I was your ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, I was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, I was the conquering warrior leading you into the promised land. In Judges, I was the broken savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, I was your kinsman redeemer. In First in 2 Samuel, I was the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face your giants. In 1 and 2 Chronicles, I was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, I was your advocate, risking my life to restore you to royalty. In Job, I was your living redeemer. In Psalms, I was the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, I was wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, I was the meaning that lets you escape the madness. In the Song of Solomon, I was the lover and your bridegroom. And Isaiah, I was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. And Jeremiah was the spirit that writes God's law on your hearts. In Lamentations, I was the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, I was the river of life, bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, I was the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, I was the ever-faithful husband pursuing my unfaithful bride. In Joel, I was a restorer of all that the locusts had eaten in your life. In Amos, I was your burden bearer. In Obadiah, the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, the prophet cast into the storm so that you could be brought in. And Micah, the everlasting ruler, born to us in Bethlehem. And Nahum, the avenger of God's people. And Habakkuk, your reason to rejoice even when your fields are empty. And Zephaniah, I am the great reformer, the one who dances over you with joy. And Haggai, the cleansing fountain. And Zechariah, the pure son who every eye on earth would one day behold. And Malachi was the son of righteousness rising with healing in my wings. But the Bible doesn't end there. He wasn't just promised. He came. And Matthew, he's the king of kings. And Mark, the son of God. And Luke, the savior born to us in the city of David, Christ the Lord. And John, he's the word become flesh dwelling among us. And Acts, he's Christ the risen Lord proclaiming salvation to the nations. And Romans, he's the justifier. And First and Second Corinthians, the spirit at work in the churches. And Galatians, he's the righteousness imputed to us by faith. And Ephesians, our righteous armor. And Philippians, the God who meets our every need and is our joy. In Colossians, the firstborn of all creation, in First and Second Thessalonians, he's the one who will come with a shout to take us to heaven someday. In First and Second Timothy, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In Titus, our faithful pastor, and Philemon, our redeemer, restoring us to service. In Hebrews, our great high priest. In James, the life at, at work in our faith. In First and Second Peter, our living cornerstone. In First, Second, Third John, our advocate, pleading his righteousness in our place. In Jude, he is God our Savior, the one who keeps you from stumbling and presents you blameless in the presence of his king with great joy. And in Revelation, he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end baby, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and the King of kings in the Lord of lords. It's always only ever been about Jesus. He's the centerpiece and masterpiece of all that is. And a couple weeks ago when we were singing at Andrew's funeral, Heather was singing a couple hymns and 
like, man, I was thinking about Jesus in the song, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, my cornerstone, my solid ground. And he is, he's the one. And I thought, I just want to sing that at the end of this message today. So would you stand up, give somebody a high five or hug around you and say, did you know that Christ is the one? He is better than anything. He's better than everything. Thank you.